Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, making biking safer and easier. The bicycle is very small, non-polluting, the people using it are healthier, but what we haven't done in this country is we haven't moved the needle fast enough to come up with enough bike innovations to provide the environment for the bicyclists. The innovations that could transform bikes and the bike environment. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, July 15th, and I'm Noah Levitt. On this week's episode, ideas that would encourage more Americans to hit the road on their bikes. Biking is on the rise in the U.S. According to the League of American Bicyclists, bike trips doubled between 2001 and 2009, rising to almost 4 billion trips a year. Some more recent data from the League of American Bicyclists shows that between 2000 and 2013, bike trips increased 105% in bike-friendly cities, places like Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, or Washington, D.C. That's compared to a national average of 62%. But despite this growth, Experts say more can be done to encourage more people to get out and ride. We know that we've got to resolve traffic mitigation. Even though we have fewer people, young people, driving, we still have traffic congestion. We still have mobile source air pollution. Uh, we still have negative impacts on the climate based on using a gasoline-powered engine. The bicycle is very small, non-polluting. The people using it are healthier. But what we haven't done in this country is we haven't moved the needle fast enough to come up with enough bike innovations to provide the environment for the bicyclists. We won't solve climate change fully with the bike, but we can make a big dent in it. And we need to get more people on bike, and we won't get the people on bike if they have to take a lane following a sharrow. That's Ann Lusk, a research scientist in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School. And she recently compiled a list of 70 innovations aimed at transforming bikes and the places where people ride them. Those innovations range from solar-powered bike paths that can melt snow and ice to escalators that make it easier for people to get up hills. We'll be talking more with Lusk in a moment, but first we want to define some terms you'll likely hear during our conversation. First, and it's when you just heard Lusk use, the sharrow. And you've probably seen these around your town or city, they're painted markings on the side of the road indicating the driver should share the road with cyclists. Some other common terms you'll hear, bike lane and cycle track. Here's Lusk again with a brief description of those. There's what's called a dedicated lane. Dedicated, you'd think, okay, this is 100% for the bicyclists. It's a bike lane that only has paint. And there are two types of dedicated bike lanes. There's one beside the curb of the sidewalk. So that can be double parked by a car, meaning every time you have to go out past that double parked car or truck, you have to look over your left shoulder, take a lane, and then merge back into your bike lane. That's a dedicated bike lane by the curb. Dedicated bike lane by the parallel parked car means you're vulnerable because, again, Russian double Russian roulette, the car door could open, you have to swerve, and then there's somebody passing you. The other type of bike lane is what's called a protected bike lane, and that's a cycle track. And that has delineator posts or a concrete island or planters in between the moving cars and the bicyclists. The cars cannot enter that lane. That's what many of us are advocating that get built. And so now we're going to dive into our conversation with Ann Lusk. And I started by asking her what some of the biggest obstacles to expanded cycling in the U.S. are. And she started with an example from here in Boston, where we're based. In the Boston area, we give out free 94,000 parking permits. 
There's no cost. If we charged 111, as they do in San Francisco, for a free parking permit, then we would have generated $10 million to be able to build bicycle environments. There was one person, I think in the Boston Globe, referenced that he owned 14 cars that he gets to store for free on the side of the road 24-7. And we know how many cars were stored on the side of the road during the blizzard because they never moved. So we have to address the car storage on the side of the road. And I think the first way to do that would be to charge for the parking permit because that would reduce the number of people who are storing the cars on the side of the road. Second, I think we could build high-rise apartment buildings, and these could be affordable in that we would then be providing parking spaces in the apartment buildings to sell to area residents to get their cars off the street. I want us to look beyond the transportation engineering guidelines, because those are all based on highway standards. Look at the environment behavior characteristics. Uh, does a woman want to go down a dark alley? Could we light that with something other than a cobra head, which is a light for a highway when you have cars or trucks going down it and they all have headlights? Could we put down the small white lights as we see in Italian piazzas? Uh, could we have socializing spaces? Uh, could the environment for the bike parking be much more pleasant? We have lobbies in buildings. We have office complexes that are lovely. Let's figure out a way to wash off the tire when you bring it into an office. You're able to take it on the elevator. You're able to take it on the escalator. You're able to take it up and park it in your cubicle. So look beyond the highway guidelines and think, what do people want to do? They also want convenience and aesthetics for parking their bike, just as they want convenience and aesthetics for going and getting a Starbucks cup of coffee. So how do you incorporate that in the bike? Look beyond the design guidelines that come from the highway engineers. And so let's talk about some of these innovations you looked at. And I think maybe it might be helpful to kind of like break it down by categories. Let's start with kind of like the bike itself. Is there one particular innovation in that area that you think is most promising, has the best chance of being implemented on a kind of a wide scale basis? The Copenhagen wheel is one that in, people have come up with different inventions for the Copenhagen wheel. That's beneficial because if you have an aging population and you want them to bike, they might not have the strength to get up a hill but they still are having to pedal, and they still are exerting the energy, they still are having to balance, so there are so many muscles that they're still having to use, even with having the electric assist. Uh, they can have cargo bikes with the, again, similar to a, a Copenhagen wheel that you have the electric assist. So that, to me, is the best benefit for the bike. A person is not on a scooter. They're still having to work to pedal, but it means that they have higher range, uh, higher ability to go up hills, and the bike then becomes less of a toy and more of a transportation mode. And so let's talk about the bicycle environment because I think I found a couple things interesting in this area. I mean, one, it seems like Europe, maybe this isn't surprising, is kind of outpacing the U.S. in a lot of ways. But then two, it's, I mean, it seems like the, the, the common theme is trying to make that, like the riding experience, maybe comfortable and safer for the cyclists. So what are some of the ways that, 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 that you've seen that have been successful or that we could maybe adopt here in the U.S.? We know that women are risk averse from an evolutionary standpoint. They don't want to take a lane. They don't want to have to move over to the left to be able to merge with the traffic and turn left. So we want to go to the population that is currently not biking and make them that much more comfortable so that we increase the numbers because we won't increase the numbers if we only go after the, and I love them, but the white skinny male who takes a lane. So to get more people, this includes women, children, seniors, and parents with children on their bicycles. We want to create a comfortable enough environment for them to bike. 
And if we look at just socializing alone, I have date night cycle tracks, social cycle tracks in there. We let people sit side by side in a car and carry on a conversation. On a sidewalk, they walk side by side. In a bus, they sit side by side. And we suggest that the bicyclists have no friends and want to ride one behind the other. When a parent would love to ride beside a child, put a hand on the back of the child, steady the child, and even give the child a little bit of a boost or a push riding. But we don't enable that in our bicycle environments. And that date night cycle track, social cycle track, should be separated from the car traffic. And there should be a Chinese bicycle signal at the intersection so they have their own signal to cross. I wanted to follow up on that because I I found that that was something really interesting because I think that one of the things that I often see when I'm looking at cyclist versus driver kind of conflicts is, you know, a lot of drivers get mad if a cyclist runs a red light and vice versa. So, I mean, is that kind of a way to maybe subtly kind of address that concern, maybe make bicyclists more more willing to kind of stop at the red light, wait 30 seconds or a minute? We know that many car drivers do not like bicyclists. Uh, they see them running red lights. They see them swerving in traffic. They're fearful they will hit them so that they would rather the bicyclists were not on the road at all. They believe the road is for the cars. Some people say, well, we'll teach the drivers how to drive with the bicyclists. We'll teach the bicyclists how to navigate with the cars, but you'll never reach 100% of all the car drivers or 100% of all the bicyclists if you design the environment. So 100% of the people in that environment understand it, then you'll get better compliance. Let the cars be in their lanes. Let the bicyclists be in their own lane with their own bicycle signal that even the car drivers can see the countdown number. The study that was done in China about the tent at the end of the cycle track The bicyclists sat under that. Nobody ran red lights, even on cloudy days, even though the tent was provided for the shade. And maybe it was because they were sort of in a house environment and nobody wanted to be the outlier stepping outside from under the tent and running a red light. Everybody would see them leaving the house and going through a red light. But the behavior was a result of the design of the environment, not, well, we're just going to teach everybody how to merge cars and bikes together. I think it's interesting because it seems like a lot of what's going on here is this idea of really treating biking as its own form mode of transportation, like a subway has its own, well, maybe the exception is a few exceptions in Boston, but the subway has its own tracks, there are bus lanes. So, I mean, is that an important distinction to make that, you know, it's not just, I mean, it almost seems like counterintuitive with this whole idea of like share the road, like we're sharing the road, but maybe in a different way. Is that kind of what you're, what you're pushing at here? And we know the share the road signs have not worked because a driver could look at it and say, well, that means the bicyclist is supposed to share with me. And the bicyclist would say, well, that means the car is supposed to share with me. So who's supposed to give up the space? It doesn't work. If we do an archaeological walk around Boston, we find, oh, there's the early first concrete sidewalk. There's a brick widened sidewalk. There's an even more expansive brick sidewalk with a tree pit in it. So we have provided beautiful ADA accessible walking environments that are a curb step up from the road. And yet we assume, well, the biker, they're fine because they want to be in the traffic because these males who have said, I want to be in the traffic. So we assume, well, everybody's going to be with the traffic, but they have no crumple zone. They are so vulnerable. And we have improved the safety of cars with the roll bars, with the wide pillars on the side, with the higher side, with the larger headrests, with a smaller window in the back. We've greatly reduced the visibility of the bicyclist for the car driver. So we all, we've improved the safety of the car occupant. We have lessened the safety of the bicyclist who then has to share with the road. So yes, sidewalks for pedestrians, ADA accessible. Yes, roads for the cars. No for parallel parking. And yes, for wide social cycle tracks. And so what are some changes that can be made when it comes to bike parking? 
No one would ever drive a car if they didn't have a place to park it near their house and a place to park it near the, where they work. And yet we have this assumption of, oh, the bike is a small thing, so it doesn't matter if there's no designated bike parking at home. When I did the surveys in Roxbury, I was finding that the residents there would carry their bike up three flights of stairs in a triple-decker because they didn't want to risk tying it to the front porch and having a saddle stolen or a wheel stolen. Any element of a bike that is stolen, you've lost your form of transportation. So we should be designing affordable housing with bike parking in each individual housing unit because if you have communal bike parking, someone could go into that communal room and start taking parts. Individual bike parking in affordable housing, in other housing, always have a bike parking room. We put two and three car garages in houses and yet we haven't thought of the bike. It's an afterthought in all of our design codes in LEED standards as well. We put bike parking in the basement in a cage and would a mom with a child or a father with a child really want to go in the basement, get through the cage, lock the bike, take the child, take the groceries, go up the elevator. For the offices, the assumption is, well, people will leave their bike in an outlying bike cage and then they'll walk a great distance. And yet if you ask the bikers, they say, I want to take my bike to my office. We want to get more people to bike for all the good reasons we've listed. So why don't we redesign offices and have a bike slip? It's a tiny thing we're putting in near our offices. We could have bike parking at each office cubicle. So there's a section on your list that focuses on climate change. Can you talk a little bit more about that? We know with climate change, we have mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation to lessen climate change. So we should then encourage more biking. Adaptation, if there's flooding, we don't want to put the bike parking in a cage in the basement with the only access to it as an electronic swipe card because all of those bikes are then washed away and you can't even get to your bike because it's in a washed out basement. So have it a solar powered access. If it's by your office cubicle, you can use your bike to get home as they did in New York City when there was the blackout. And then for also for adaptation, if there's flooding, then have the cycle tracks, the evacuation route to be able to get outside of the city on the higher elevated ground and the corridors that don't get flooded because the old evacuation routes based on the highway system don't work as we found in Katrina, uh, as we found in countless Fukushima, um, because the roads become clogged, cars run out of gas and no one can move. Are there any cities that, that you see in the U.S. that are kind of doing things right that are kind of leading by example for other cities, other towns? Uh, Madison, Wisconsin is doing a good job. Uh, Portland has a lot of good off-road paths. New York City, but only a few cycle tracks. New York City has put in lovely cycle tracks on its major roads. There really yet are not enough cities in the U.S. that are moving the needle faster. And part of it is it took us a long time to get cycle tracks approved. So many of us in the academic community had to do the research to show that cycle tracks are safer, to change the design guidelines coming out from the Federal Highway Administration. NACTO has been able to change things a little bit more quickly. But it's so hard to get experiment status. I'm right now trying to get experiment status to test the Chinese bicycle signal. But all the responsibility came back to me to raise the money to buy the Chinese signal to install it, to disassemble it, to raise the money for me to do the surveys, the bike counts, and the observations to be able to prove that, yes, this is a safer bicycle signal. So the system is not rigged in our favor. There is so much highway research that is funded, that is carrying on, and yet every gain that we make for the bike is put on the burden of really the academic mm -hmm. to raise the money to do the research. And it's, it's not a fair system at the local level 
it's all citizens having to show up to defend putting in a small cycle track section. And then we still get pushback from the car owners. This is anecdotal. This is maybe just bias living in Boston. But I mean, it seems like a lot of people, I'm 30, a lot of people of my age, I mean, we see more open to biking, more people are biking. Do you see that trend maybe changing, though, in the next decade is a lot of these people who are already biking as as they're younger, as they're kind of growing older, and biking becomes kind of more ingrained in, in their daily commute. So do you see maybe that shifting at all in the next decade or two, or is that, or is kind of the highway car culture just like too ingrained in the U.S.? I think the millennials are helping change uh, because they're out, out biking. They're start, starting as college students, and then they're continuing biking later. The millennials are going to get married, and they're going to have babies. When you have a baby, uh, it's hard to have a zip car because you have to put that child seat and those kids' toys and those books in each car clean out the crumbs when you take the child seat out. And after a while, you say, we've got to at least own one car and know where it is. If the child's sick, you've got to take them to the hospital, doctor's appointments. You need one car. So how do we move forward when the millennials are saying build apartment buildings with no car parking? Because what they're doing then is they're realizing, uh-oh, I need a car. Even though I didn't have a car when I was younger, now I need a car. You're parking it on the side of the road. So sort of hurting yourself by saying, I don't want cars, I'm great, you will need a car. So I would love it if the millennials led the way and said, we know we want a bike, we want to continue to bike, but we're going to need a car. So how do we resolve this and not go to 0.5 car parking spaces per condo, but instead go to three parking spaces per condo and sell those car parking spaces to adjacent homeowners to get the cars off the street? You kind of touched on earlier, I mean, this idea of kind of, I don't know if danger is the right word, but people kind of being risk averse, being concerned about getting out on the street, getting hit by a car. What, what, I mean, what would your advice be to someone who is kind of considering, okay, I want to start biking to work. I want to bike to the train station, but I'm concerned about my safety. I'm concerned about getting there safely. What would your advice to be to those people to kind of help them maybe get started? Take all the back streets. Don't take a major road. Uh, map it out on the weekend. Find where you're comfortable. Um, if you have to, get off your bike and walk it on the sidewalk. Don't take the risk of biking in the door zone. And that's a Russian roulette, and it's a double Russian roulette because the door could open, you could swerve around, and then a bus or a car could be passing you. So lower your risk tremendously every step of the way. And if you feel like a fool walking on the sidewalk, feel like a fool because you're safe. And I know that many in the bike community haven't wanted us to emphasize the lack of safety because they want to get more people biking the safety and numbers effect, but no one should have to be that that 1% that does get hurt. Uh, they shouldn't have to be the guinea pig. What are the things that you see on your rides that are most frustrating, annoying, that makes you want to scream at a driver? I mean, what frustrates you? I confess that I tend to walk between home and work, even though I adore biking, and I could bike because it's a half hour walk, and if I walk briskly, I'm healthier than if I only bike for the 15 or 10 minutes. It's a short ride, it's a short ride. And then I do here have the issue of bike parking, but I'm seeing the bikers all the time, and I'm favoring them all the time. Um, I love them when they stop at the intersection. Uh, I feel for their feel for them when I see them biking in the door zone. And it was Chris Weigel at Com uh, on the Com Ave, the BU student who was emailing me while I was in Australia. He was a journalism student. He was writing an article about cycle tracks. He was biking in the painted bike lane and then he was killed by the truck. So I see it all the time. I'm observing them all the time. I congratulate them all the time. 
but I come right back to my desk and I work as hard as I can to improve the bike environments to make their life better because some of them I see are taking great risks and I know the risks they're taking. Thanks again to Ann Lusk for taking the time to speak with us. If you'd like to see the full list of innovations she compiled, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that is all for this week's episode. We'll be back next week with our usual roundup of public health news. And a reminder that you can always listen to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.